What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. So Lauren Teresia Landavazo was born on October 14, 2002 in Wichita Falls, Texas. Her soul knew. Her soul knew. She didn't have a long time here. There's, I'm not going to let nobody else uh, enjoy, enjoy that. This is a dangerous, dangerous individual. For a year, I'd seen her rocking with her boyfriend. I hadn't had access to a gun. Yeah, I fired at her, and then well, her friend was like right beside her, man. But I was just pulling that trigger as fast as I could, and it sounded like it was. If the world were full of people like Lauren, we wouldn't have problems. We wouldn't need laws. We wouldn't need guns. We wouldn't. She's just a pure soul. She's pure love. Start thinking about what you've done to others, because whatever's in your heart, that's the only thing you're going to take with you when you leave. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. I'm your host, Josh, and I'm joined in the studio, as always, by my colleagues, my friends, my lovers. Wow. Incredible. Austin and Danny. How are you going? How are you going? <laughs> How's it going, guys? I didn't know we were going public with our relationship. Well, I think it was. it's about time that we profess our love to each other <laughs> and to the world. Fair. Right back at you. Well, guys, we're back with another dark one, per usual. Uh, we're going to be covering the case, uh, the very, very tragic, horrible murder of Lauren Landavazo and a man, a real-life monster, by the name of Cody Lotz. This case is shocking. It is absolutely horrible what happened to Lauren and Mr. Cody Lotz, we have a lot to say about him, but he, uh, definitely not, not right in the head, but he, he believed he was a pawn of the devil, uh, that he's in this cosmic battle with good and evil, a lot of delusional thoughts going on. He thought he was going to trigger like a spiritual war between God and Satan, which is wild. And he believed, or claimed that he believed that Lauren was an angel and that it wasn't possible for her to die and obviously you know that wasn't true and you know she she did indeed die but this case is got a lot of elements to it it's got a lot of you know, some controversy around it uh, including the punishment for Mr. Cody Lotz uh, his defense tried to argue you know this guy's not right in the mind he's definitely got a lot of diagnosed mental health issues but there's some things in there that the prosecution felt like hmm you know is that just an excuse for what she did or you know was he actually conscious about what he was doing you know was he insane or was he very conscious and you know planned out and what he was going to do this you know at the time of Lauren's death so a lot to unpack here definitely very heavy very tragic but a case that definitely, you know, people need to know about. Before we get into things, though, I wanted to remind you that one way you can support the show that is absolutely free just takes a moment. And I haven't asked for this in a while, but if you can make sure you're subscribed to us on whatever platform you're listening or watching to Lights Out on, we'd greatly appreciate it. It just takes a moment. 
hit that follow button if you're on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or if you're over here on YouTube, uh, make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Um, there's a lot of you that aren't and it'd be great if you just just do that for us. It does really help us out. Yeah. Also, um, I haven't mentioned this in a while as well, but I also host another podcast, a true crime podcast called Mile Higher with my wife, Kendall Ray. Maybe you're, you're familiar with her. She's also a true crime creator on YouTube. Uh, she has a podcast as well called True Crime with Kendall Ray, but we co-host a podcast together called Mile Higher. Basically all true crime, we do cover some other mysteries. And if you go back a few years, we get into some other wild things as well, including some conspiracy theories. So if you're interested in that, definitely check out Mile Higher as well. But this episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. Um, love Rocket Money. More on that later. But shall we just go ahead and dive into things here? And let's start by talking about the victim in this case, Lauren Landavazo. So Lauren Teresia Landavazo was born on October 14, 2002 in Wichita Falls, Texas. Wichita Falls is known as the gateway to Texas, and this city is about two hours northwest of Dallas. It's close to the Texas-Oklahoma border. And Lauren's parents were Vernon Wayne, who went by Vern, and Bianca Teresia Landavazo. Lauren also had two brothers, Jordan and Tim. Her family said she was, quote, the lovely, lively heart and soul of our family, our most precious Pooh Bear. Growing up, Lauren was a friendly, social butterfly. She had a great sense of humor and could pretty much talk to anyone she came across. Just an amazing soul, honestly. Everybody loved her. Her positivity and friendliness made her one of the most likable girls at school. And one of her best friends was Michaela Smith. Michaela was the daughter of Shamikia and Rodney Smith, and she was born only a few months after Lauren on December 20th, 2002. She loved reading, listening to music, and hanging out with friends, and she was once described as, quote, bright but soft-spoken. She was also a daddy's girl who always put others first. She matched Lauren's positivity, which made them great friends since fourth grade. And they were always seen laughing together at school, and they would also walk home together. So it kind of sets the scene for what's about to happen, and, you know, this is just a normal day for them. You know, they walk home from school and I think that's what makes this case so scary is it is just, it's just so shocking. It just comes out of nowhere. It's something that you can't ever plan for or expect. And oh, it's just absolutely tragic what happens next. Yeah, it's just random and violent. Yeah. Which is pretty much uh, what the world has come to at this point. Lots of random acts of violence. But on Friday, September 2nd, 2016, Lauren and Michaela were just finishing their first week of eighth grade. It was a beautiful late summer day. The final bell rang and school at McNeil Junior High had just been let out. Michaela met up with another friend and started her usual walk home. Michaela then spotted Lauren Landavazo, who had caught up with him across a field. And once they met up, they all headed east to an alleyway often used by McNeil students to walk home. Michaela and Lauren had walked this alleyway hundreds of times before, and they never felt afraid going through those neighborhoods. On their way home, they talked about boys, how they didn't have any classes together that year, and their weekend plans, and Lauren was on her way to meet up with her boyfriend, who wasn't far away. As they walked through the alleyway, a small group of three younger middle school kids walked behind them. Lauren was about to break off from the group to head to her boyfriend's when all the students noticed a large vehicle pull in front of them near the alley's intersection with Trinidad Drive. 
The driver's side window faced them. At first, some of the students thought it was just a parent or a friend picking up someone in the group to drive them the rest of the way home. But then the driver's side window dropped down, and a man with an assault rifle appeared from the window and fired off more than a dozen rounds. Some of the younger kids farther behind thought the weapon was just a paintball gun or a BB gun. But they knew something was very, very wrong when they saw Michaela screaming and running. This man's main target was clearly Lauren. But obviously he's firing off a lot of rounds and he was also targeting her friend Michaela. Michaela was hit in the chest and Lauren was struck by 14 or 15 bullets before she fell to the ground. The shooter then sped off in his vehicle and the rest of the middle schoolers immediately ran for safety into one of the nearby backyards for cover. And I mean, just imagine what these kids are are feeling in this moment and I mean, just pure shock of what's happening and horror as they're trying to, you know, just get to safety. They don't really understand what's happening or who this guy is and what's what's the purpose behind this. It just seems completely random to them. And I actually have a clip of one of the eyewitnesses, Elijah Ogwan, and he's talking about the experience and what they did afterwards. It's pretty, pretty eye-opening. Well, we went back outside into the alley to see what had happened. And we, we saw Lauren on the ground where she had fallen. And we also saw Michaela. She was, looked like she was out with her phone trying to dial a number. Was Lauren moving? No. Did you talk to Michaela at any time that day? Mm-hmm. And did you notice anything unusual? Did you see whether she had been shot or not? Well, she was on the ground and we were um... Sorry. It's okay. You're doing great. Really? Well, we were just talking to, like, we were asking what was going on. And we asked if it was, like, a real gun or what. What she said? She said yes, because kind of, she was on the side trying to get, she was out of the hand over where she had been shot. And so at that point, then I like, uh, I kind of got over the shock of it and I was more frightened at that point. So I pulled out my phone and I called my dad. Kind of heartbreaking seeing how young the kid is, too, who was the eyewitness. And there were there were a few others as well, but man, I it also just sucks because this is like the end of your first week in middle school, which is usually the energy is pretty high. It's like the Friday, the first Friday after you start school, which is like the most palpable, and it's before you get into the, like the slog of the school year. Right. And so, I don't know. It makes this tragedy even worse that these kids were kind of coming home on a high. Yeah, looking forward to the year ahead and. To just have this happen right in front of your eyes. I mean, I mean, the strength that he shows just getting up there and testifying and recalling what happens and is incredible. I mean, all of the all of the witnesses and and Michaela especially. I mean, just the pure strength it took to to survive this is uh, is is admirable. I mean, it's this is the worst case scenario for any parent to find out that your kids have been involved in a shooting. And, you know, just trying to wrap your head around why. So as you kind of just heard, the middle schoolers witnessed Michaela on her hands and knees in the alleyway. She's trying to call and she couldn't breathe, obviously, because, you know, she's been shot and there's blood running down her chest and she's trying to, you know, 
clamp the wound with her hand and just, you know, get help in any way, shape, or form. At about 3.30 p.m., a 911 call reported shots fired in the alleyway near the 5100 block of Kingston Street. Neighbors then began rushing to the scene one by one. Jamie Lopez had been driving her kids home from school that day when she saw Lauren lying prone on the ground. The 33-year-old registered nurse told her children to stay in the vehicle. Lauren was on her stomach, and when Jamie turned her over to perform CPR, she noticed a bullet hole in the area of Lauren's heart, and Lauren was unresponsive at this point. Multiple people had surrounded the scene, staring blankly at Lauren's body. Jamie then went to her car and got a blanket to spread over her. Jamie also assisted Michaela with her injuries. I mean, that's just... As dark as these things are, I think it just shows there are good people out there. Yeah. That are willing to jump in and help. And no I mean, they don't know asked. what's happening. You know, they don't know if the shooter's still, right. still out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no putting their lives asked. on the line to, to help others, I think, is just truly amazing. With her own children still in the car, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Once emergency services arrived, they found Michaela clutching a school binder to her chest. She was still alive, and they were able to take her to the hospital. It was reported that she was praying the entire time that her friend Lauren would survive. Um, Michaela ended up surviving her injuries, but a bullet fragment still remained in her upper torso. She later testified in court, and she was not shown on camera, but we have a clip of some of her testimony describing her experience, which I think is pretty powerful. Paying attention to him, and I was looking at him, and like he looked up at me and we made eye contact for a few seconds and then he turned and like he got his weapon and he pointed it at me so like I was kind of turned this way to move okay to your right to my right okay and I was kind of well I was trying to reach for Kyra so she can move because I didn't know what was going on and like he pointed it at me and as I was moving, I got hit, and, like, I thought I got hit in the middle of my chest, mm-hmm. and I couldn't breathe. And Kyron's asking me if I was okay, and, like, I couldn't speak, and I was waving at her to go and kind of, like, motioning for everybody else to move. And we all turned to leave, and I was hearing shots firing over and over And I was wondering why, like, we weren't getting hit anymore. Mm -hmm. And, like, I thought everyone was there. And, like, after everything, all this, like, no, there were no more shots. And, like, we stopped running. And we all turned and, like, the car was gone. And um, I was looking, I was kind of making head counts. And, like, I didn't see Lauren anywhere. So I was walking over to the dumpster and I had to sit down because I couldn't keep standing. Yeah, right, okay. As I was, as, as I, I was sitting near the dumpsters, um, Kyra, I didn't, I still didn't know if it was real or not. And like, I was feeling either. Run down, I was feeling my blood run down my chest, down my stomach. And Kyra was asking if it was a joke, like she wanted it to be, because she, she was freaking out. And one of 
the seventh or sixth graders came up to me and she was like, no, that's blood, that's real. And that's when I, I was really starting to look for my friend and like I turned and all I saw was her legs and she was laying on the floor. And I was, I was screaming her name and she wasn't responding. So that's when I, that's when I got out my phone to call my mom. Cause I wanted to tell her it was, my friend was hurt. So I was calling her and it wasn't, it wasn't going through. And then her call kind of like overriding mine. So I answered and I was telling her that Lauren, that Lauren got shot, and she didn't hear me. If you're just listening to this, um, this this particular clip, you know they don't have the camera on Michaela, but the person you're seeing on screen is actually Cody Lott on the back of his head, and he's just sitting there listening to Michaela recount the horror she just went through, and you know it's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking to listen to. And again, I just commend Michaela for being strong enough to get up there and talk about this in front of the person who did this to her and the person that murdered her, her best friend. It's just, the bravery is, is, is astounding. This episode is brought to you by one of my favorite apps, Rocket Money. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you have no idea where it's going? Well, I know this very, very well. Because guess what? Most of the times, it's those pesky subscriptions. I mean, think about it. Everything is pretty much a subscription these days from fitness apps, delivery services, parenting apps. It's very easy to lose track of them. I know for me, at one point, I had over 20 different subscriptions going and over half of them I wasn't using. But that all changed when I started using Rocket Money, which I've been using Rocket Money for probably over a year now. I absolutely love the app because it has helped me get my personal finances under control and it gives me that visibility that I didn't have previously. So like I said, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, it monitors your spending and even helps you lower your bills. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you, which I think is a really, really cool feature by up to 20%. So your internet bill, TV bill, sadly, it won't be able to negotiate your rent for you, but pretty much everything else you can have it go and try to negotiate a lower cost for you. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. This has been great. I definitely have used this for my internet bill and they've actually been successful in shaving off some money off that monthly bill. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's free to download, it's free to uh, use, but if you want all the capabilities, it's definitely worth the premium uh, plan option, which is what I pay for. You get so much more. You get spending alerts, you get credit monitoring, and you really just, I mean, it's an app you'll use every single day. So it's well worth it. Plus, it'll save you a ton of money in the long run. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash lights out. Seriously, go check it out today at rocketmoney.com slash lights out. So... A little bit more details about what happened with Lauren. So, like I mentioned, Lauren was shot 14 or 15 times. There's conflicting info on about how many actual shots there were, but she was shot from about three feet away. 
And this was, again, an assault rifle. It was a 22 caliber AR-15 to be uh, specific. So, I mean, this is a high-powered weapon. And at that close range, it's not going to be very hard to, to kill somebody. Several of the wounds were fatal, including two shots to the head, one to the liver, and one to the left lung. And, you know, they did an autopsy on her, and she had all sorts of injuries in addition to those. Uh, she was shot in both of her hands, which I assume was probably because she was holding her hands up, or maybe he was just sh shooting her all up and down her body, pretty much. Um, she was actually shot in the spinal column, and uh, one of those bolts to the head ended up hitting the brainstem, which is a fatal, fatal shot, obviously. She also had abrasions on her face, which was from her falling to the ground. Because, um, again, she was discovered face down on gravel. But just absolutely horrific. Um, they determined that 30 shots in total were fired. Uh, which, to me, sounds like basically a whole magazine was unloaded on these girls. After the gunshots rang out, the entire neighborhood flew into a panic. A neighbor had stopped by the land of Oz's home soon after. They asked Lauren's mother, Bianca, if she knew where her daughter was. And the neighbor then told her, quote, Kids are down kids are down oh just i just came and fathom what that must have felt like to hear that from your neighbor and thinking is that my kid that's down police had quickly arrived and had secured the scene and since lauren's body was still covered by the blanket many of the parents didn't know whose child was actually underneath it they were frantically calling their children hoping that their child wasn't the victim Bianca then ran toward the commotion in the neighborhood and her husband, Vern, hopped in his truck and followed her. Here's a, a clip of Bianca talking about her experience. So I ran down the street as fast as I can. All I saw was people everywhere in the crime scene tape. I didn't know about, you know, her friend being shot. I didn't know about anything with gunshots at all. And I keep looking. I look down at my daughter's laying there. On her back. Her head was turned this way, so she's looking right at me. And she's the only one I see. I knew she was gone. I can't explain it. I knew she was gone. And I know I was screaming, I guess, really loud and horrible screams. But I know I was calling her to come back. I felt like she was going to the light and I was trying to get her to come back. You know, don't go, please come back. Once I got Lauren loaded into the ambulance, Vern sat beside her. At that point, he thought his daughter was still alive because the paramedics had reported a heartbeat, but it was only an artificial heartbeat, which is because the heart can keep pumping even after death. When they arrived to the hospital, Bianca told her husband Lauren was already gone, and doctors had officially pronounced her dead on arrival. After the shooting, the community really couldn't believe that two middle schoolers had just been randomly attacked in such a safe neighborhood, as you can imagine, and... There was a huge amount of pressure on police to find this killer, but at the time, the police's only suspect was a white male with bushy brown hair, possibly driving a black or gold SUV or truck, and this description was given to them by one of the shooting victims, Michaela, 
and a few of the other eyewitnesses, but unfortunately they did have conflicting information on what kind of car was being driven. And if you can imagine, if there's conflicting information on the car, you can only imagine how hard it would be to identify this person. And no one could really understand the motivation for someone just randomly shooting two middle schoolers in the middle of the day. The investigator's first assumption was that the shooter must have known Lauren, right? That's really common in murder cases. So police first headed to the Land of Ozzo house and searched Lauren's room. They confiscated her phone and iPad to see if the shooter was possibly someone she had been messaging, but nothing stood out. Here's a weird part of this investigation. As Bianca, her mother, watched them search her daughter's room, one of the detectives painfully admitted to her that there was a chance that they might never catch the killer. And Bianca, understandably so, couldn't really imagine or understand why they would even tell her something like that. That's um, very bizarre. I mean, very insensitive, first of all. Yeah. Something you should never tell a victim's family, especially this early in an investigation. Right. And my assumption is that they're going off experience with drive-by shootings or something like that. You know, they're thinking maybe that's just a random act of violence and there's no connection there. Although it's very weird because clearly they're there looking for a connection. But why on earth would you say this to, to the mother, a mother who just lost her daughter and basically maybe. like give, give her no hope and ever finding out who did this to your, yeah, to I your could, kid? I could understand saying that maybe in private to another detective right, or right. something like that. But to say that to the mother is unhinged. Meanwhile, the community came together to support the Landavazo family, and near the alley where she was murdered, neighbors set up a small memorial and a whiteboard where people could leave nice messages. And many of the messages and stories were people sharing their reflections on Lauren's true character. And one story told of how one woman's son had been a new student at McNeil Middle School, and on his first day as a new kid, you know, he was worried about who he would sit with at lunch. So he ended up sitting by himself, but within minutes, Lauren came over to give him company. And Lauren's father, Vern, when he heard this story, he later said, quote, I didn't know anybody like that in eighth grade. Eighth graders weren't usually that nice, which is so true. Usually eighth graders, that's where you're in like your most miserable state, right? But that goes to show um, how awesome of a person Lauren was. So the manhunt continued for the shooter, and police interviewed the middle schoolers who witnessed the shooting, but obviously, as you can imagine, interviewing 12 and 13 year olds after a traumatic event like this is just extremely difficult because they're so young. And Dr. Brianna Fox, a former FBI agent and criminologist, explained that these children at this age had witnessed something that they had never expected. And even simply just asking questions can get a child to scream, cry, and shut down completely. And the prosecution also realized that having a jury even believe eyewitnesses who are minors and this young was also going to be an issue. In the meantime, they reported Michaela's shooter's description on social media and local news, and they released all the information they could, hoping that someone would come forward with information. And it was... It was really difficult, though, because they didn't have much to go on. Because, unfortunately, many young white men had shaggy hair and drove large cars in town. This is Texas, so that's just who, yeah. if you pointed out any car, you know, it would most likely be a white guy with shaggy brown hair. So, they also had problems with the description of the vehicle, as I said, and 
Some said he was in a black and chrome truck or a gold, or sometimes it's described as champagne SUV. And police reported both to the community just in hopes that someone would come forward. On Sunday morning, two days after the shooting, the sergeant detective called the DA at the time, who was Maureen Shelton. And he told her that Michaela was still recovering in the hospital, but she might have gotten a good enough look at the shooter. So the sergeant suggested bringing in a sketch artist. Now, Maureen, the DA, had never employed a sketch artist in her 24 years of work. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah, isn't that wild? And she didn't personally elaborate on why, but there are big stigmas to sketches that I'm going to dive into a little bit because I do think it's kind of interesting in this case with a DA agent who hasn't implemented something in 24 years would finally consider it, I think is, is an interesting note. The whole idea of sketches is to get an accurate description of the suspect out to the public. But obviously, this doesn't work if the witnesses don't accurately know what they look like. And like I said, we couldn't even get an accurate description of the vehicle. How would they get it on the shooter? Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, there's not much data on how often sketches actually help police. But typically, police sketches in cases where the suspect is caught The sketches really don't look anything similar to the mugshots. Occasionally, some are exceptionally accurate. One example is the Oklahoma City bomber, which you can see here. I mean, that's Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty spot on how they how they got him. And here's some other ones I think are interesting. So, Son of Sam, who we David Berkowitz. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, that one's not. Mm. They get the nose and the mouth kind of right, but. Everything else is kind of wrong. The head shape, the hair is wrong, the eyebrows are wrong. And then we have one that we recently covered, Richard Chase. Uh, I wouldn't no, I wouldn't recognize like that him, guy yeah. at all. Well, and it doesn't account for the fact that the suspect could put a disguise on or you know, Cut alter their, their appearance in any way. Right. So exactly. Yeah, and I think it was probably more popular before you know, like videos and, you know, cameras were everywhere. People had phones and stuff. It would make sense that sketches would be more useful right. at that point in time. But now with how many cameras are out there in the public, you know, they don't have to rely upon sketches quite as often because usually there's some type of, you know, footage from somebody's ring doorbell or you yep. know, somebody driving by, notice something weird going on, takes video of it. Um, obviously, in this case, that didn't happen. But and I think that's why it's kind of like a last resort type of thing. Like if you don't have anything to go off of other than, you know, an eyewitness or or the victim's able to give a description, like what do you have to lose at that point? Right. And so you can imagine that's uh, really the desperation that Maureen yeah. is in. If she hasn't been utilizing this in 24 years, you can see they were in dire straits. Then this last one of BTK, I think is comically strange, but also uh, somewhat accurate. Like they do have, the mustache and like kind of the close set eyes and kind of, but I mean, it look like, how would you identify anyone from no. that sketch? Right. Yeah. The sketch makes it look. Yeah. It doesn't even look like a real person. Where's the nose really. at? Yeah. It's like faded in there. Well, it's like, who's actually drawing these sketches? You know, they have actual right. sketch artists on hand or is this just some officers? Like, let me take a stab at this, yeah. you know? So the police sketches that have worked are usually only for people with very distinct facial features, which makes sense, right? 
According to an experiment conducted by the British Psychology Society in 2005, only 8% of sketches were identified correctly. And that is 13 out of 160 sketches that they had. Now, obviously, some would say like, hey, this is better than having nothing at all. But is it? Because the problem with sketches is that there are also pretty severe risks when you're using them, especially if that witness doesn't remember the suspect's face correctly. And here's an example of how much damage it can actually do. Because in 1996, a man named Dean Cage was sentenced to 40 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Someone claimed he looked like the sketch of a rapist in Illinois, and the victim then wrongly identified him in a lineup. He ended up serving 14 years oh my God. behind bars before he was later exonerated. So that just goes to show how not only sketches are kind of inherently wrong, but also people's memories of how people look because the victim wrongly identified right. the person. So we just really don't have a concept of how people look in our memories. It's, it's distorted. Which is also why vehicle description is so important. Right, it's yeah. much easier to find a vehicle based on a description, plates, so true. Uh, make model, than it is to identify a person. You know, especially in the moment too. Or you know, most people are who are committing crimes like this are concealing their identity, wearing a ski mask. Then what do you do? There's nothing there. But if you can at least get the vehicle description, you have a much better chance of finding that 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 individual, which is which is something. You know, we should all all do if you ever, you know, witness a, a crime happening or s somebody does something to you, like out of everything, try to get the vehicle description and, and better yet plates if you can. Yeah, you know, yeah. You'll see it, see it all the time on, on YouTube and TikTok and things like that of, you know, road rage and stuff like that. It's like people are not necessarily focusing on the individual and trying to like is. capture the person, but mm -hmm. rather the vehicle that they're in. And exactly. Because then I mean, they can police can then go trace that vehicle to the person who right. registered to. And that the vehicle description, even though we don't have an accurate one in this case, it will come ultimately, into play later. Ultimately yeah. it helps big time. And I mean, even the one we just covered kind of recently, the Uber killer, you know, he switches cars because even he knew, oh, now I'll be identified in this damaged vehicle that's obviously on everybody's radar. But even after he switches, they're like, there's the HHR. And so police are just pulling over every single HHR that they could find. And they eventually found him that way. So yeah, vehicle description is huge. So here's the main problem with sketches is that we process faces holistically, meaning that we don't really take the individual features and put the face together. It's just all one thing. But victims and witnesses are usually asked to describe the individual features for sketches. Over time, We've actually had computer programs that were introduced to kind of help out the process, but these programs still relied on the individual features. But now we do have newer, even more newer computer programs that have proved to be much more reliable. Um, they use things like gender, age, race to kind of just randomly generate these faces. And then instead of going after individual features, witnesses can choose a few of the generated faces that like, oh, these kind of look similar. And then the program will use this quote unquote genetic algorithm to put the faces into one and have like a rough description of them. And then they can even adjust these holistic variables. They can put things like pleasantness, health, honesty, outgoingness, masculinity, were they threatening? 
so that you can even adjust it to things like that, which are, it's more these holistic variables that we should be focusing on rather than individual facial traits. Which I think AI helps immensely with, you know, solving crimes and identifying suspects. And, you know, there's, there's one software uh, that's being developed by these guys that call themselves Eagle Eye. And they're using OpenAI Dolly 2 image generation modeling to create realistic images from a text prompt, which is probably similar similar to this. And, you know, they're rather than this like sketchy looking drawing, you know, that's like using a pencil or right. crayons, you know, they're able to make a photorealistic image of somebody which based on all of these different characteristics and features that I feel like probably is much more helpful. I mean, and sketches are still very much an important thing and I'm glad they're utilizing technology to help with this as they are, you know, using AI for all sorts of other, other things when it comes to policing and investigation. But like one of the cases we recently covered on mile higher, the Rachel Morin case, this one is really interesting because they were able to figure out who the suspect is by DNA evidence although they don't have a name, they don't have like an actual personal bio on this person. They don't know who it is, but they're able to trace a crime he did across the country back to the crime, uh, the murder of Rachel Morin on the opposite side of the country through DNA, but they don't have a profile attached to it. They don't know who this person is. And the only image they have uh, is this doorbell footage of this person in this other location exiting a house and it's just a side profile of this person. And I don't know for sure if they used AI or not to create the, the sketch, but you look at the, the sketch for the suspect they just released a couple weeks ago, and it, it looks fairly accurate to what we see in the actual video. And, it, and we don't know what this person's front face looks like as far as we know. They haven't released that. I don't know if that exists out there, but the only thing they have to go off of to try and identify this guy is a sketch. There's nothing else. Right. Um, so they're yeah. hoping that somebody will be able to recognize a sketch and be like, oh, yeah, that's so and so. And yeah, they can at least start narrowing it down. There are plenty of cases where the sketch is all they have to go on. But so if we start implementing kind of this newer technology to do it, we might be able to avoid some of the problems that we've seen in the past. But unfortunately, also with just detecting faces like, like Dean Cage, it's, sometimes people are just going to look exactly like the sketch, but they might have nothing at all to do with the crime itself. But in that case, it's hopeful because they actually have the guy's profile on video. You know? Yeah. So it's actually yeah. there, but you know, like we said, sketches are sometimes all detectives have to go on. And in the case of Lauren Landavazo, their sketch was only called for because of the massive amount of public pressure on the case. And they were really desperate for anything that might help. So after 24 years of not using sketches, the DA, Maureen Sheldon, decided they should move forward with a police sketch. But you're like, Austin, why did we go on this huge tangent? Because luckily, they didn't even have to rely on the sketch. On the day of the phone call between the DA and Sergeant Detective, a couple had noticed something odd over at Lauren's memorial where she had been murdered. A gold Chevy Tahoe SUV was seen slowing down and stopping right where the alley met the street, which is almost exactly where the shooting took place two days before. The witness, Joanne Perez Ramirez, recognized the vehicle from the police descriptions. She also noticed a white male with shaggy hair in the driver's seat. 
Joanne thought this matched the description of the suspect that the police had released. So she and her husband actually followed the SUV. Pretty bold. Yeah, taking it one step further. When it finally came to a stop only a few blocks away in the Fountgate apartment complex, she watched the shaggy-haired white man exit the driver's side door. He circled around to the passenger's side to get something from the vehicle. It was a long item wrapped in a blanket and clothing. Joanne claimed she saw the barrel of a rifle sticking out. The man then went inside the apartment building and came back without the item. Joanne immediately took down the license plate number and apartment number and called 911, which kudos to Joanne for, Seriously. for taking upon yourself to basically solve this case. Yeah. A police officer had just been up the road, and when they neared the location where the suspect was seen, they saw the Chevy Tahoe pulling out of the parking lot and heading down the street. So they're like, let's go pull this vehicle over. The officer asked permission to search the vehicle, and the driver consented. Inside, they found a brass shell casing from a rifle and a backpack that had brass knuckles in it. At that time in Texas, brass knuckles were a prohibited weapon, so this was enough to arrest the driver, 20-year-old Cody Lott. So who is this utter piece of shit? Well, Cody Austin Lott was born on January 7, 1996 to Christy and David Lott. He grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, and according to his father, Cody was a bright and kind young man. He always got good grades and did well in school, apparently. During his teenage years, friends and family noticed a change in Cody. His dad noticed he would often become aggressive and have violent outbursts. He also became a loner in school and didn't have many friends. His father thought Cody's behavioral problems were due to the divorce his parents were going through. And things only got worse after that. By the time he was 13 years old, he started smoking weed and drinking, and his mental health began to decline. When he was 14, he started dating one of his classmates, Haley Clayton. They dated for about two years, and Haley later claimed she suffered several incidents of physical and emotional abuse during their relationship. And we're talking about a basically like a middle school, high school relationship here. And he's just doing all sorts of fucked up shit. He's pushing her down staircases. He's wrapping a seatbelt around her neck and strangling her. He's also slamming her head against the dashboard of his car. In 2012, Haley moved to Colorado to live with her mother, and Cody joined her. Within a month of moving, his abuse had escalated to the point where Haley's mother was concerned about her daughter's safety, so she bought Cody a bus ticket and sent his ass back to Texas. Haley and her family believed that if she had returned to Texas with Cody, he would have ultimately killed her. So she broke up with Cody and lived with her mother for about a year before returning to Texas in 2013. She then began dating another man, got engaged, and ended up having a child with him. And when Cody learned about this, he began harassing Haley and her new boyfriend. He even threatened to cause them to get into a car accident, and if they survived, he threatened to torture them before killing them. This guy is completely unhinged. He also threatened to torture their newborn first and have them watch. I mean, just pure evil. Every few months, Haley would get harassing texts and calls from Cody. She claimed she went to Archer City Police and tried to get a restraining order, but they said they couldn't help her. Which, if that's true, that's just so sad. Yeah. I think that they're not even going to offer her help or believe the abuse that she's incurring from Cody. Cody would continue to harass her up until the morning of the day of the shooting. Meanwhile, Cody's drug abuse had gotten much, much worse. He began using heroin, LSD, meth, MDMA, GHB, basically anything to get his hands on, and he wasn't able to hold down a job, as you can imagine. 
In 2014, he was arrested for drug possession and theft and sentenced to three years in probation. In 2015, things got even worse when he was involved in a police standoff hostage situation. On June 10th at 10 a.m., an emergency phone call came in from Cody's grandmother. She claimed she was being held against her will, and Cody was apparently holding her hostage in the house at gunpoint. Luckily, police were able to handle the situation peacefully, as no shots were fired. And in the end, Cody's grandmother didn't press charges, which is like, what? So scary. I mean, it's just... I wonder if maybe they came to a different deal here, and I just... Or maybe they were giving Cody the benefit of the doubt. They're like, we know he had some problems, so as long as the police handled this safely, it's okay. Instead, Cody later checked into the University of Texas Harris County Psychiatric Center from June to August 2015. Here he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. After his release, he refused to take his medication. and Instead, he self-medicated himself with recreational drugs, which... This is just a recipe for disaster at this point. And that's what I talked about deal. Maybe they were like, maybe the grandmother was like, I won't press tar- charges if you go to a psychiatric center and get help. Maybe that was the deal, which is why he ended up going there. But if you're not going to take the medication you get, what's the point? Then what's the point? Exactly. During this time, he mostly lived in an apartment with his mother and stepfather. They lived very close to the McNeil Middle School at the Fountain Gate apartment complex. One day, Cody was in the apartment gazing out the window, and that's when he noticed Lauren Landavaza walking down the street. Lauren often walked home with her friends or her boyfriend, and as each school day passed, Cody became more intrigued with her. He began to obsess over her constantly, watching her walk home from school every day during her 7th grade school year. But Lauren didn't even know that Cody existed. But soon, his obsession from the apartment window turned into aggression and rage. By September 2nd, 2016, he decided to carry out his twisted plan. He had waited until his mother and stepfather were out of town and he had access to their apartment whenever he wanted, so he went inside and found his stepfather's AR-15 rifle in its gun locker. He then got into his Chevy Tahoe and drove towards the alleyway. And he knew that Lauren would be coming through to get home from school. And then he committed that atrocious shooting was arrested two days later when lauren's father Vern later got a glimpse of cody he was confident lauren could have defended herself if he ever approached her because he was so scrawny and he said the only reason cody was able to harm her was because he had this assault rifle which we'll get into that a little bit later but after his arrest cody was recorded speaking to himself in the back of the squad car saying jesus help me jesus please forgive me jesus Once they got him back to the station, he did not request a lawyer and immediately spoke with a detective, Alan Killingsworth. And at first he lied and said, look, I have nothing to do with the shooting. When the detective put more pressure on him, Cody tried to redirect the conversation and he began talking about his traumatic childhood. He claimed that his father was a Satanist and often sexually abused him when he was young. And this led to his abuse of drugs early on. But... Alan then redirected the conversation back to the crime at hand, and he firmly told Cody that the spent shell found in his Tahoe matched the shells at the crime scene, and Cody claimed he had no idea how to even shoot a firearm, and then he tried to blame his stepbrother for it. But after about 45 minutes of lying, Cody eventually broke, and here's a clip of his confession and where he begins to break. 
experience. But I, I saw her, I, I drove by in my car like a couple of days before. And I made eye contact with her and her eyes looked like, like gems or something to me. Like that was all, I was like, how could someone have such beautiful eyes? And like, I just said, what's up to her as I drove by. Like I didn't, I just, you know, said, what's mm-hmm. up. I didn't mess with her or nothing. I just drove by her, but I said, there's, I'm not going to let nobody else uh, enjoy, right. enjoy that. So you, you pretty much knew what to work around. Oh uh, man, I watched her for about a year, man. Uh-huh. For a year, I'd seen her rocking with her boyfriend. Right. I hadn't had access to a gun. Uh-huh. I'm saying they stopped yeah. the and Lauren looked at me like, like I was joking, or she kind of looked at me like, oh please, you know, uh-huh. she kind of just like turned her head like that with a kind of smirk on her face. Right. And that's when I decided, my eyes changed, and I just, I felt, I was like, uh-uh. you fired at her first? Yeah, I fired at her, and then her friend was like right beside her, man. I pointed up, and I did aim at Lauren, but not at her head. Like, uh-huh. I thought it would jam on me, or, you know, you would think a gun would jam on you, but I was just pulling that trigger as fast as I could, and it sounded like it was, all of a sudden, very open about his confession here. It almost seems like happy about what he did. Mm-hmm. Like he's very enthused when he's talking about how this all went down. Yeah, and some FBI analysts would analyze this confession. They they did say it's like what are this? One of them said it's like a, a it, it feels like him talking about like he's on vacation and he's like reliving yeah. it and he's enjoying it. Right? Yeah, it's just disgusting to watch. And uh, if that's not already disgusting enough, here's another clip of him talking about his problems with women. I've had a problem, you know, with females for a while now. You know, you can, you're already, you can ask anybody I know and they'll tell you absolutely that's something Cody would do. They'd say, absolutely, he is, he has hate in his heart. Like, I'd seen that girl walk in multiple times with her boyfriend, and her boyfriend was just a little punk looking kid that wasn't no man. So it kind of just sparked Like this guy looks like a man, right? He, Fuck this dude, I man. know. He gives off incel vibes for sure. Her boyfriend was a kid. Yeah, right. yeah right. literally they were children. Yeah, he's a moron. It's clear he's just like seething with jealousy. Yep. He's like, I want her. Fuck her boyfriend. I'm better than him. Yep. Yeah. But it gets more unhinged from here on out. And he confidently went on to explain the details of the crime. And he said, quote, well, the day before I got all dressed up and I was going to just go approach the girl and thought, hey, every girl that I try to be respectful to and be nice to, they say the definition of crazy is just repeating the same thing. So it's an obvious thing. Me being nice is something that isn't going to get me nowhere. I had to try something else. All these girls were just ignoring me and disrespecting me. And all I ever wanted was an opportunity to be respectful and treat a girl right. Doubt it. Definitely. What? Yeah. What the? What the hell are you talking about, dude? You're over here referring to girls and as females, and just I mean, the disrespect in your voice is so evident. Yeah, and also it's like no, no uh, introspection here because it's like they're ignoring me and disrespecting yeah, me. Them, There's yeah. nothing wrong with me here. It might I might not be a you know repulsive person. He's not even considering these things. It's just like they're wrong and I'm right. Very frustrating to listen to this guy talk. But here's a bit more of his confession, if you can stomach this. Because I knew this girl was going to end up getting raped here in a couple years, and there's all kinds of evil going on, man. So in my mind, I saved her from the evil of this world, and also it was kind of a sacrifice to the devil. Because uh, like I've been talking to the devil a lot, and he's the one that, that, that told me to do that. Because I was sitting there with the gun, 
and I was I was I was watching them. I was watching out the window, man, waiting for them to. Or I was. She had been walking by herself every day. Oh, I don't even know what to say about this guy. He just clearly has a completely warped and negative view of women, which well, I think is kind of the core issue here. And what is his fucking logic? Yeah, it's there is none, which we'll see in a little bit here. Uh, the, the devil told me to do this, right? Like that's the oldest excuse in the book too. It's like people are like, oh yeah, the devil told me to do it. Of course. So he basically we had to kind of chop this up. I think the whole confession video is somewhere around like four hours long, but he goes on this long rambling rant. He talks about his birthday being January seventh, nineteen ninety six. If you flip the nine and the six, which I don't know why you'd have to, but the six represents the sun and it represents the color red. The nine represents the color blue. Combining the two, you get purple. Cody said he burned purple incense and spoke with the devil while drawing hexagrams and pentagrams. And he said that he knew Lauren's favorite color was purple. So it was, quote, something that was meant to be. And he also explained that his bloodline matched with the gods. Oh my God. Yeah, we're... This could be drugs talking here. Yeah, it might be. Because what the hell? That doesn't even make any sense. None of this makes sense. Yeah, we're going to... The next few things I say, it's just going to be kind of a summation of his ramblings. And yeah, it really doesn't make much sense. But he also admitted to researching blood sacrifices, Charles Manson, and Satanists. He believed men out in the woods of Houston were transforming into wolves. He then compared losing his ex-girlfriend to, quote, some dumb piece of shit and he compared that to lauren's current boyfriend and at some point in the interrogation he was literally just rambling incoherently like there's a part of the interrogation where you can't even understand what he's saying and he's just going non-stop and then when he becomes more clear he said how happy he was to kill lauren and confess to it and he constantly expressed how he had found lauren attractive and Police later found child sexual abuse videos on his phone. His interrogation and rambling went on, like I said, for about four hours, and he believed that Lauren was an angel, and it wasn't possible for her to die. By shooting her, he believed he would just send her to another dimension, and he believed he was sacrificing himself and his freedom for the common good of the world. He thought there was a cosmic battle between good and evil, and this murder was how he would get God involved, since she was his angel. But he, Cody, was a pawn for the devil, and his goal was to try to get God to come to Earth and intervene in the shooting to save his angel, and then stop the abuse of all the people in the world. Uh, so, so, yeah, none of this really makes sense. He also hated the fact that the media was calling this crime a senseless act of violence because he claimed that it was, quote, a calculated assassination that took a lot of planning. And he claimed he had been planning this for over a year and he ultimately did it for the thrill. So I feel like we have our premeditation there for this crime. He thought the devil would stop him from getting caught and he would be rewarded with fame and drugs. He also said he killed her to prove his manhood what this is like which is it yeah what is like a million explanations it doesn't make sense 
I mean, if I was the officer, though, I would just be like, I'll yeah. let this roll because right. we're just going to use, use all of it yeah. against you. He then went on to tell a story of how his stepfather once drowned many women in bleach and never got caught. He also said, which I, there was no truth to this as far as I could find. He also said that the murder was a solution to stop him from asking his mother for more drug money. And he also murdered Lauren so that others could feel what he felt on the inside. He wanted to, quote, get the birds chirping like other satanic murders. And he was also excited to be on TV. He also later opened up about shooting Michaela, saying, quote, if I had more bullets, I would have been able to kill her as well. And after other investigators watched this confession video, they could tell Cody enjoyed talking about it. Like I said before, Dr. Brianna Fox, a former FBI agent and criminologist, I said this before, said it was like him talking about a vacation and he was reliving the murder as he talked about it. Investigators never found any connection between Lauren and Cody through social media, email, phone calls, or texts, and they had never met, which this is just extremely rare in murder cases. Normally, you would have met the the suspect would have met the victim right and it sounds like maybe in his head they had some interactions he talks about uh i don't know i i i don't even know what i don't know how you even explain his thinking yeah it's just completely delusional yeah i mean at the very core of everything he's just a child predator yeah for sure who i mean based on the you know child content he was in possession of i think it's very evident he's just he's you know he is attracted to younger younger women and he saw her he wanted her and then he was upset by the fact that she had a boyfriend and then he had his previous issues with his ex-girlfriend and so i think at the core of everything it's this jealousy and anger in his mind he's been rejected uh by his ex although it's because you're fucking insane right and dangerous um and just an evil person and so he's trying to justify all these things i i just the, all of the other stuff that he brings into it the you know doing this for the devil and you know god's gonna come down and save his angel and just like seems like in this time that he he's alone he's consuming all this content he's getting all these ideas from things that he's coming across in his research you know do you think he's being genuine when he's saying these things no okay you think he's just making this all up no i think it's uh i think it's very obvious based on his performance in the interrogation clips that this is a an act and he's trying to shock and awe everybody full well knowing the more sensational he is about everything the likeliness of it you know bringing him this fame it is you know more likely if it's got all these other elements to it yeah because he yeah he even admits he's like i hope the birds can get chirping because it's like if i make it a satanic murder right it might get more media exactly attention. yeah so exactly. he even admits that well so and like he's on. researching marilyn manson and obviously we know that's one of the most Charles infamous cases right marilyn manson. <laughs> yes not marilyn manson charles manson he's researching his you know his group and their murders and mm -hmm. he knows that that's like an infamous 
crime that has gone down in history and pretty much everybody knows charles manson at this point and correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure charles manson's one of his crazy motivations was to get a race war instigated. right so like it's kind of in the he thinks that there's some cosmic spiritual war at play it's kind of like he was inspired by charles manson here right right so while the police are doing their investigation trying to get to the bottom of why this happened Poor Vern, he had to plan his daughter's funeral for the following Thursday at the local First Baptist Church, and both Vern and Bianca were constantly worried about the outcome of Cody's trial, which wouldn't begin for another two years on September 10, 2018. Cody was charged with first-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon, and he was held on a $4 million bail, which which was a good thing. The prosecution's main concern was if the jury would end up feeling sorry for Cody, He was young, he struggled with drug addiction, and his mental disorder was a big concern. He had originally been found incompetent to stand trial, so he was sent to a maximum security mental institution for six months to regain his competency for a fair trial. He then pled not guilty by reason of insanity. So the prosecution would have to prove Cody knew the difference between right and wrong when he committed the crimes. Prosecutors were aware Cody had a previous diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And according to Dr. Soham Das, a forensic psychologist, Cody's diagnosis was a combination of schizophrenia and affective disorder. Schizophrenia, as we know, is a state of psychosis where people can hear voices and can experience paranoid delusions. An affective disorder is related to mood. The patient is either very depressed or in a manic state at any given time. The defense claimed that Cody wasn't responsible for his crimes because he was in a delusional state of mind. Again, since Cody had claimed in his confession that he thought Lauren couldn't die because she was an angel, so that she would ascend to another dimension, they argued he couldn't comprehend the impact or consequences of her death. The testimony of Dr. Brian Falls and the questioning from the prosecution became heated during the trial. Got a few clips that show just how difficult the discussion of Cody's mental state truly was. And then did he also tell you during your most recent interview that he was... He, Cody Lott, was hoping to get not guilty by reason of insanity. Yes. Those were his words. Yes, but when I talked to him no, previously... No, sir, just he, yes or no, okay? Well, when I talked to him previously... The question was, were those his words? Yes or no? Yes. Did he not tell you also that he was not involved in Satanism, but he had just researched it? Uh, he told me that, uh, yes, when I when I... So you can tell, you know, they're asking questions and they're like, no, this is a yes or no. You don't get to uh, expound on this at all. And then uh, this next clip, they're talking about firearm safety. This is the context because, and they're, they're talking about specifically the safety being turned on and off. If he's in a room in an apartment by himself and he puts the safety on, it's only so that he doesn't accidentally discharge and hurt himself, correct? There's no one else around. It, it's so it's so that it doesn't yes accidentally no. discharge. Yes or no? You put a safety on so that it's safe that you don't harm anyone else, correct? You don't want the, the yes firearm to yes discharge. No, I'm going to object regarding this. No, he's allowed to explain his thing on that question. Yeah, it's my understanding that safety, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a firearms expert, but it's my understanding that safety is used so that the weapon doesn't accidentally discharge. 
And, yeah. and if a bullet goes off, it, it could it could hit someone, uh, including yourself. And if you're in an apartment by yourself, the only one you could hurt is yourself, correct? That's correct. I, I, okay, that, that's it. So, yeah, and you, you can tell also they're getting into the nitty gritty of it, right? Because they, I mean, to prove that someone knows right from wrong and it is or isn't insane, you kind of do have to get into the nitty gritty. And so that's why they're even just things as simple as the safety on the firearm, why it gets so contentious. You can even see, you know, they're objecting in court and the doctor's trying to explain a little bit more, but the prosecution doesn't want to allow him to say anymore, just yes or no. So. Also during his testimony, Dr. Brian Falls insisted that Cody reported hearing voices. A day before the murder, they supposedly told him, quote, enjoy murder, it will be worth it. A forensic psychologist, Dr. Randall Price, also testified in Cody's case. He'd evaluated Cody before the trial and he claimed that Cody was fully aware of his actions. We have a clip of him on the stand. We'll show you now. I had to be more focused on facts, information in the records, information about what he did, than necessarily what he told me because um, he was likely telling me things that were, that were exaggerations of the problems that I believed that he had. Um, but um, it made it more difficult for me to do the diagnostic work here. So he was basically hoping that he could fool you. Well, I would say uh, at least influencing what I might have to say. But it did not. Um, not in the direction that I believe he probably would have liked for it to go. So the prosecution would go on to prove that Cody knew right from wrong from the evidence, which is our best friend here. And it was clear that he was just trying to cover up his tracks. Cody admitted to driving away from the crime scene that day. Then he got on a highway and drove to a familiar field that he had been to before. He then hid the rifle in a location where he could find it again. And obviously hiding a weapon suggests that Cody knew he had done something wrong and he needed right. to hide it, right? It's not where he normally stores that rifle. Exactly. Then he headed over to Archer City, about 20 minutes south of Wichita Falls. He met up with a girl he knew at her house and got high. On Sunday, he went back to the field to retrieve the rifle, and then he returned to put it in his stepfather's gun safe in the apartment. And this is when he passed by Lawrence Memorial, which is where he was spotted by the eyewitness who then followed him back to his apartment. Which I think returning to the place of the murder, mm -hmm. to me, also signifies he knows what he did. For sure. The prosecution also pointed out that when Cody confessed, he said that after the shooting, he knew Lauren was dead by the way she looked. This showed that he 100% understood the consequences of his actions here, and this wasn't just sending an angel to a different dimension. Throughout the entire trial, obviously, you know, emotions were tense. Friends and family had to listen to Cody's rambling confession, which, I mean, we only had to sit through a little bit of it. Imagine watching, like, hours and hours of him go on like this i couldn't imagine and they had to sit through the audio and video of patrol cars arriving to the murder scene and this is when lauren's mother bianca could be heard screaming and wailing in the background when she unfortunately discovered her daughter 
All the members of the jury were also parents, and this added to the emotional impact, as you could imagine. But still, prosecutors were worried that for some reason, the jury would still feel sorry for Cody, so they would have some sympathy for him. Because uh, the defense also added there was this recorded phone call that Cody had made to his mother and stepfather after his arrest when he confessed to the crimes again. And um, it's things like this that might make you feel sorry for Cody. And the defense was absolutely going to use this in court. So here's what the phone call was. Is my mom there? Cody said to his stepfather, Brian Rowland, who had answered the phone. He responded that she couldn't come to the phone, but Christy Rowland, his mother, later joined into the conversation. So Cody then told them he was, quote, arrested on the murder of that girl and the shooting that happened. And his stepfather asked if he did it. Cody said, yeah, I confess to it. His stepfather then asked why. And Cody responded, quote, I don't know. His mother told Cody that he just messed up his life and then told him, quote, have fun spending the rest of it in jail. And Cody responded, quote, it was already messed up. Before ending the call, Cody told his mother that at least she wouldn't have to give him money anymore. So it's things like this that like you kind of want to feel bad for him. But at the end of the day, you know what he did. The prosecution knew that Cody might get some sympathy from the jury throughout the trial, but Cody really had shown no remorse for what he had done. During the prosecution's final statement, Special Prosecutor Ron Poole reminded the jury of how Cody drove back to the memorial two days after the shooting. This is what you were just talking about, and I love what he does here. He quotes the Bible. He says, Just as a dog returns to his vomit, a fool returns to his volley. Well placed. Yep. On September 20th, 2018, the jury deliberated for only 40 minutes. Wow. Wow. And, he, and here was their verdict. Verdict of the jury. Count one, we the jury find the defendant Cody Austin Locke guilty of the offense of murder as alleged in the indictment. Yes, correct? sir. Deadly weapon verdict, count one. Having found the defendant guilty of murder as charged in the indictment, we, the jury, further find that a deadly weapon, namely a firearm, was used or exhibited during the commission of the offense. Is that the verdict of your jury? Yes, sir. Verdict of the jury, count two, we, the jury, find the defendant Cody Austin Lott guilty of the offense of aggravated assault as alleged in the indictment. Is that the verdict of your jury? Yes, sir. And then finally, verdict of the jury, deadly weapon verdict, count two, Having found the defendant guilty of aggravated assault is charged in indictment, we the jury further find that a deadly weapon, namely a firearm, was used or exhibited during the commission of a felony offense. Is that also the verdict of your jury? Yes, sir. Is this a unanimous verdict on each and four? Yes, sir. Thank you, ma'am. You may be seated. Wow. Pretty quick. That's I think that's one of the fastest deliberations I've I've come across. Forty minutes. Very fast. So for the murder of Lauren Landavazo, Cody was sentenced to life in prison. A life sentence in Texas is technically 60 years, and in 30 years, he'd be eligible for parole. He was also sentenced to another 20 years and $20,000 in fines for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon on Michaela Smith. Lauren Landavazo's parents thought that his sentence wasn't nearly enough for his crimes. In 2019, Lauren's law was signed in Texas, and this toughened the penalties in murder cases involving children. With Lauren's law, 
prosecutors can now seek life without parole in the death of a child older than 10 but younger than 15. The law was not retroactive, so it didn't affect Cody's sentencing, but it'll be enforced going forward. After the attack, McNeil Middle School placed a forever horse statue as a memorial outside the school in Lauren and Michaela's honor. But this was later stolen by vandals in October 2020, uh, which ended up being four young men. 19-year-old Zachary Kaiser was later sentenced to two years in state jail in order to pay $4,000, which how shitty of a person you have to be to steal a memorial for a young girl that was murdered. Unbelievable. The Land of Ozzo family recommended probation instead, though, and Zachary was allowed four years of probation instead of two years of jail time. A new Forever Horse was installed in May 2021, and it still stands there today. As for Michaela Smith, she has struggled in the years since the attack. After losing her good friend Lauren, she'd constantly check in with friends and family, anxiously making sure everyone was okay, which I can only imagine, you know, how how impacted she is by what she went through and, you know, why she would do this. But despite her trauma, she's determined to live her life to the fullest in honor of her friend Lauren. Since the trial, Cody Lott has tried to appeal his sentence, and in October 2018, Cody Lott's attorneys requested a new trial. They claim that, quote, the verdict and sentence were contrary to the law and evidence, and that the evidence was insufficient to justify the verdict and sentence, which I'm like, how is that even possible? Right. They argued that the verdicts were obtained using inadmissible evidence, and Cody was originally pulled over due to an illegal stop by police. In November 2018, he was denied a new trial, and his sentence was upheld, which, thank God. I think the argument there was that that stop, that first stop by police when he was pulling out of the apartment complex, they technically didn't have a reason to pull him over. Some tried to say it was a traffic stop, like a traffic violation stop, but it was never really clarified. It was mostly like the suspect, we believe the suspect of a shooting is in that vehicle. And so they didn't technically have reason to pull him over, which is when they found the bullet shell casing right. and the brass knuckles and then arrested him. So they were just trying to find a loophole, essentially. Yeah. I mean, they're just trying to find anything because even if he hadn't been pulled over at that moment, they would have got him either way. Right. right? They yeah. now know who he is. They just go, you they, know. They had his place. They had the apartment number. Yeah. yeah. They could straight. just go right to his house. So yeah. like that's, yeah, that's grasping the straws there. In February 2020, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals declined to grant a review, which officially ended Cody's chances for state appeal. On hearing the news, Bianca Landavazo posted to Facebook saying, quote, He will rot in prison where he belongs. It's finally over. Again, there have been no reports of Cody Law ever apologizing for his crimes. And as you saw in the interrogation footage, it doesn't seem like he has any remorse or guilt about what he did, despite, I believe, full well knowing what he did yeah agreed he is serving his sentences concurrently and will be eligible for parole on september 3rd 2046 at age 50 so he has quite a long ways to go before he's even eligible for parole which is a very good thing because to me this is a dangerous dangerous individual i think it's unfortunate that lauren's law isn't retroactive or at least they could have put in I don't know, a stipulation where they maybe could have applied it to this case because doesn't it seem odd that you would name the law after the victim yet it doesn't even apply to the person who committed the crime like yeah it is kind of weird so that was a little frustrating and 
just one thing I want to bring up, which I think, so there was just this case, which I think most of us have heard it by now. It's been covered on national news, which is uh, the Ethan Crumbly, the Oxford High School shooting, uh, which I think happened in 2021, I believe. No, it's obviously different with a child here. And we talked about Luke Woodham uh, being a child as well. In this case, Cody Lott is 20. He's an adult. But in that case, this is, I think, I believe it's the first time that the parents have ever been convicted of. So Jennifer Crumbly just recently, I think it was a week or two ago, was just convicted of involuntary manslaughter on four counts. And it was specifically because both parents were charged but it was specifically because Ethan had access to their firearms in the household. And it really reminds me of this case because why wasn't the stepfather charged with involuntary manslaughter in this case? Because knowing that we have a man diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and you have an assault rifle and ammunition being stored in your home that he has access to is mind blowing to me. How, how is the stepfather not responsible here? It's very frustrating to me. Yeah. It's, and to be fair though, had he not been able to gain access to that, he was 20 years old. So he's still be able to go to the local sporting goods store and probably still purchase a, which again, I'm not familiar with the, uh, gun laws in Texas. Um, from what I understand, it's fairly lax in comparison to other states, but yeah. I don't know if the visit to the psychiatric facility or anything like that, whatever, would, would show up on his, his background checks or anything yeah. like that. I, I know in Colorado it would. Uh, yeah, in yeah. Colorado for sure. It mm-hmm. would, yeah. So, yeah, he probably could have went and bought an AR-15 on his own if he wanted to, but it seems like he had no money. Right, he probably yeah. wouldn't be able to afford to get one. So then, again, you know, he had access to that gun and he knew where it was and he's kind of been able to fantasize about what he was going to do. Like you said, it planned this out over a full year. Yeah. And, and I mean, would he have even been planning it in this way if he didn't realize that he had access to his stepfather's rifle? It seemed yeah. like that kind of played into whatever delusion he was going through and whatever plan. Well, it's like, keep your guns locked up. Like, Seriously. Be a responsible man. gun owner and yeah. just keep your, you know, if they're registered to you, you should be the one, you know, only one that has access to them. Absolutely. And I mean, I know in, um, I believe it's Japan. I believe it's like part of their, their laws there in regards to firearms. Like they're already very restrictive about who, who even owns one. And I know that if you do get approved to own a firearm that, it has to be locked up and they actually send people into your home to like check shit. to make sure that you're actually following uh, the laws and, and keeping it uh, locked up uh, when you're not using it. And you can be like arrested for improper uh, gun storage and things like that. Yeah. And not, not necessarily like something we need to go as, you know, to the drastic lengths that they do in Japan, but it right. does seem, I do feel like we need to hold people accountable for, just not i mean the amount of of gun deaths that are just accidental and children that for shoot children themselves, yeah exactly it is absurd and the fact that some people just leave them laying around or in a drawer or you know where they can easily be accessed whether they have a you know safety on or not like it's just it's crazy i mean it's alarming numbers um 
here in the United States. So yeah, it's like um, at the very least, just be a responsible gun owner and keep that lock, keep it locked up, keep yeah, it away from. And even if we weren't going to go for involuntary manslaughter on the stepfather, is there no, is there nothing else that we could have gone after him for? It feels like, yeah, maybe there should be laws implemented where if your firearm is used in this circumstance, something at least take the this. gun from him. Yeah. Which I don't know. I don't know if they ever, I assume they took the gun for evidence. So I don't know if they've actually released the gun back True, to him or yeah. not. They might have just kept it. Who would even want that firearm? Yeah. It's exactly. been used in this way. Seriously. Right? But Seriously. Jennifer Crumbly though, she is, she still hasn't been sentenced yet, but she's, I think they can give her 60 years max. If, uh, Holy shit. Yeah. But I'm like, that, that was a pretty astounding case because I think it's the first of its kind, but it kind of, opens our eyes here in the u.s to uh i don't know we need to be responsible gun owners if we're gonna own firearms it's as simple as that especially around people who are mentally ill right well how are we going to stop these shootings from happening i mean we got to do something at this point because it just keeps happening yeah you know? and, and a lot of times it's kids that are just getting access to them I mean, a lot of them do are of age and can go you know 18 years old and you're a senior in high school you can just go to the you know, local Walmart and purchase a purchase a rifle. True. So you know maybe there's some some changes to the age in which you can acquire a firearm. That's that need to change. You know, that's funny you bring that up the Walmart thing because um, you know Alexis loves to travel abroad and uh, yeah she says a lot of the times when she tells people that she's American that the first thing a lot of people bring up is like oh yeah all I really know about it is like your food. And that you can buy a firearm at Walmart like willy nilly, and it's like that's what we've become known for. It's yeah. like such a problem. That yeah, just that's how others see us now. Get your groceries and get your gun. Yeah, and and like I know there's gonna be people who are gonna be all pissed off at us for talking like this. And I mean, like, you know, I'm a responsible gun owner, and same. I I you know honor the Constitution. I think that's a right that as Americans that we we have. I just think same. that there's a way to be smart about it. It's the same reason that there's licenses and testing for driving a vehicle that's a weapon at the end of the day so to me it's no different it should be there needs to be a little bit more you know and more hoops to jump through yeah um to ensure that we're not getting you know these weapons in the hands of people who you know shouldn't have them yeah normally i wouldn't want to crack open this can of worms but i felt like with this situation well especially your last couple episodes too yeah right repeating access to firearms here yeah and it's just like i feel irresponsible to not even to just like not talk about the issue yeah, here. brush it under the rug yeah so that's why i brought it up sorry if we pissed anyone off but i i hold the same uh opinions that josh does and i'm also a responsible gun owner so yeah it's just common sense gun laws at the end of the day it's just like we need we need something here because this shit keeps happening and kids are losing their lives at the end of the day I, I care more about my kids live than whether or not this person has you know access to to a gun ultimately it's like and i think it really changes too when you become a parent and you know schools are getting shot up and you're like it's a fear that you have you know yeah. it's a fear that i've wrestled with many many times like do i homeschool my kid like how am i going to ensure that my kid is safe at their school but then you're like is my kid safe anywhere? The library, True, the yeah. grocery store. I mean, yeah, our, yeah. especially here in Colorado, we're we're no strangers to uh, mass shootings. So it's like it is a fear I always have in the back of my mind, even even right now, not knowing where she is or 
knowing that she's going to go to the store today. It's just, it's, I try, I try not to think about it because it's terrifying and it, and it, it is the, the worst possible thing that could happen to your child. And it's just, and it's, it's, there's not a way to prevent it. I mean, and that's the hard thing about it too. It's so frustrating because is there a one, you know, one size fits all solution to this problem? And I don't think there is. Yeah, it's definitely multifaceted, but I mean, even Vern himself, the father of the victim said, you know, I saw Cody, he's this scrawny little dude. Yeah. Uh, if he didn't have the magazine size and the weapon that he did, he probably wouldn't have done the damage that he did, which I think is a good point, you know? And it's, it's always the cowards that, that use weapons like this as well. So yeah, it's just a sad reality that we live in now, but something's got to give, right? It does. It does. But we're going to end this episode. The only, only way we feel is best. And that is to listen to the parents final statements on Lauren, as well as some of the other victim impact statements during the trial, including Michaela's mother. Cause I think it's, very important to hear how this crime has affected them and i mean this is a life altering altering thing that happened and you know i'm in full support of keeping this guy behind bars for the rest of his life and i'm sure her parents feel the same way because i can imagine how they would deal with him ever getting out yeah and again i think he's a danger to society but great we're gonna go ahead and leave you uh with those clips and we'll see you next week You know, looking back on all that and the way that she lived and so adventurous and spontaneous and random and always wanted to go somewhere. It's like she wanted to see what life had to offer. She wanted to go out and explore. She wanted to try new things. And it's almost, you know, to me, her soul knew. Her soul knew she didn't have a long time here. That's just how I felt. And so Lauren just lived, you know, the fullest life she could that short time. If the world were full of people like Lauren, we wouldn't have problems. We wouldn't need laws. We wouldn't need guns. We wouldn't. She's just a pure soul. She's pure love. Purest love I've ever met. To anybody who knew her, knew how kind she was, how loving she was, that's what she'll always be remembered for. Uh, just the ability to bring a smile to your face no matter what. Like I told her before she passed, I think she would be helping people. Whether it be a therapist, you know, a counselor, I just really feel like she would have been helping people. I just know she would have done good. We always told Lori that wherever you go, that's where we're going. And we're right. We know where she's at now, and we're going to. We'll catch up with her. We've had so many people that have come into our lives that changed our lives, but they changed them for the better. Each one of my kids have changed my life for the better. My husband changed my life for the better. And as a parent, I never thought in my wildest dreams, and I'd always taught my kids to say never say never. But as a parent, I never thought that I would be on this side. Looking at the man 
who not only changed my daughter's life, but her family. And that would never, never be the same. I almost had pity on you. But what is, it wasn't until I heard things that I hadn't heard since that day that had you had more ammo, you would have killed our daughter. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. My daughter's a strong girl, and we didn't know how strong she was until that day. And even stronger on last Thursday. That's one thing you won't be able to take from her. And so when she grows up and she has children, I hope she can pass that same strength on to her kids. You're evil. You're an evil person. I taught my kids to look out for the bad people. Look out for the people who may try to get you to go somewhere with them. I've never had a conversation with them to look out for someone that may want to take your life. I'm not even, I was sorry at first that no one ever stood up and took the time to make sure you had what you needed in life because I knew they had to know something was wrong early in your childhood. I know they have to know that. Because as a parent, I know when something is wrong with my kids. And me and my husband do anything we can to make sure that we can fix. And nobody did that for you. So I don't want to be more angry at you or to be angry with the people that should have been looking out for you. But being that they didn't, you were able and capable without second thought to do what you did. Love you. Love you, B. As I sat here and listened to you talk, the first time I'd ever heard your voice, the only time I had ever seen your face before was in the mugshot, and then in the pretrial hearings that we would go to, when I saw you in that mugshot, when I saw you in court, you looked evil, looked hateful. Look twisted, look at me, please. You look twisted, you looked evil. I had no pity on you. All I could think about was what you took from us, who you took from us. After you went for some treatment while you were holding, while you were gone, while you were being medicated, while you were being trying to help you, and when you came back into court for the next hearing after that, when you walked in the room immediately, I was struck by the difference that I saw in you, that I saw in your face. And as I watched you that day, and I watched you sit in court and listen to the seriousness of what you had done, it seemed to me that you had finally had a realization of what you had done. And to me, you looked like a scared, lost little boy who was grasping for hope couldn't help but be touched by that, but, but to feel pity for you, for what you had done to be that 
twisted inside that, empty that, the lack of anything good that you could do something like that. Despite myself, I felt ashamed of myself. I felt ashamed of myself for feeling pity for you. I didn't even tell my wife, I didn't tell Bianca that I felt that way. I didn't find out till last night that Bianca also that day felt those same things. I was too ashamed and too embarrassed. Please look at me. Too ashamed and too embarrassed to tell me that we felt pity for you. Despite what you had done to our daughter, to Michaela, all those kids that were out there that day, the impact on so many people. Still felt pity for you. Still struggling to try to find a way to forgive you, to not carry hatred. In my heart, you're a human being. I try to treat the world the way I want the world to treat. What I treasure the most is my children, my daughter. You'll never know the treasure, the greatest treasure, the only thing that matters in life. It's not material things, not titles, not wealth, not power. It's love, and there's no greater love than the love of parents and children between parents and children. You'll never know that. For that, I pity you. Choices that you made that day. The only thing that you said that was right was about how beautiful Lauren was. How she was an angel. She really was. She was sent down as a blessing. Part of our test in life. When you, when you have a love like that that you obviously don't know, there's, no, there's nothing greater than that. It's the only thing you're going to take with you out of this life. It's what you have in your heart. And I do pity you for what's in your heart, what's not in your heart. The choices you made caused so many other people to suffer. We have no choice. The grief that you gave us, we'll live that until we die, until we go home and see our daughter. We don't have a choice. Choices that you made, you're going to suffer the consequences now. You're not going to know the greatest gift in life. You're not going to know what it feels like to be a father, to hold a baby, a child that you helped make. What you're going to know, fear, pain, humiliation for what you've done. And the ironic thing about that if Lauren had known you, had known the pain you had inside of you, you had been able to reach out like a human being, that this is a good person I see, this is somebody, a light that I see, a goodness, you'd have reached out to her and let her know how empty and hateful you felt inside, Lauren would have been the first one to try to help you. That's who she was. She's everything good and hopeful about humanity that you're not. And you're not ever going to have a chance to, to prove that. But you made your own bet. I don't pity you for that. You made your own choices. You're going to suffer the consequences of those choices. It will never equal, no matter what pain you feel, it will never equal the pain of losing a child so senselessly. And yes, it was senseless. I've heard you use the term, what it's like to be a real man. Okay? You don't understand the first thing about being a real man. I think you do now. First thing you're doing, you're looking me in the eye. That's what a real man does. Okay, not just pulling up on little girls with a gun. 
without being able to look me in the eye after what you've done. Maybe you have a spark of it. I do not wish the pain that you caused on your family, your mother, your father. I don't wish that on anyone. Okay? There's been a lot said about your parents and whether they're good parents or not good parents. I only know from a parent's perspective, at some point in your life, you were a center of their universe. Same way Lauren was the center of ours. Don't know what happened in your life to take you and make you do what you did that day. It allowed you to do what you did that day. And, and it, like I say, any excuse you gave or any reason you gave, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be enough. But to see the manner with which you described it, and again, I had never heard you talk until I saw your confession. I expected when I saw it that it might, I was hoping almost that it would be something you were, you were, you were timid, you were hesitant, you were remorseful. You haven't shown any of that. And then to find out even after you were treated, even when you looked different to me, strikingly different, they hadn't changed the way you think inside. Still smiling and laughing about what you did. There was nothing funny, nothing for you to be proud of that day. You stole our daughter from us physically, but you did not kill her spirit. As you contemplate the rest of your miserable existence that you brought upon yourself, I hope you follow the things that we're trying to do in our daughter's memory and in, in her honor to try to keep her spirit alive and to spread that and to try to prevent not just deal with consequences, but try to prevent tragedy like this from ever happening again. We try to make sure there aren't people like you out there preying on innocent people. And we don't mean by physical violence stopping you. We have to, we have to touch people's hearts. And that's the problem with the world. People don't look at each other as human beings, treat each other like human beings. We divide ourselves. And again, we approach life as a contest. What can I do for me? What can I do for me? That's not what life is about. That's not what being a man is about. If you have all the power in the world, that doesn't make you a man. What makes you a man is what's inside your heart, your empathy for other human beings, and a desire not to hurt anybody. That shouldn't even be an issue, but how can I help? How can I help somebody? I don't know if there is help for you, and I do feel pity for that, but that's your choice. You brought that on yourself. We all have to live with your choice that day. I hope within your heart that you're able to, to reconcile what you've done. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Start thinking about what you've done to others. Because whatever's in your heart, that's the only thing you're going to take with you when you leave.